So as you can tell, like many of you, our focus corporately as a church has shifted to Christmas, and we find ourselves preparing for the birth, a celebration of the birth of Christ. Uh, in previous years, we've done that as a church by buying in bulk uh, various devotionals that are focused on Advent, and we have not bought any. However, if you can click a computer, if you can go to a website, you can get one for free. You don't have to pay for it. And the one that I would recommend, and there's some other ones there as well, is The Dawning of Indestructible Joy. It's one that I've used, we've used as a family, and um, many people in the church have used in previous Advent seasons. So it's The Dawning of Indestructible Joy by John Piper, and it's available for free download at desiringgod.org. And I encourage you to, whatever it is, I mean, obviously scripture, you know, if it's, if it's a tool like this, get in the Word so that your focus in this season would be on the celebration of the birth of Christ. That's why we Christians are here right now. God the Son took on flesh to bear the wrath that we deserved. And so we want to make sure that, that we're not following the world and all that, that has become of the Christmas season, but that we are enjoying Christ. So use a tool. Use the scriptures. Use a devotional like that one. But somehow, some way, get your heart and your family's hearts centered on Christ this Christmas. Uh, well, in the, in the bulletin it says that the text will be Mark 15, 33 through the end of Mark 15. However, in preparing to preach this text, I realized that I tried to bite off more than I could chew, which happens often. And so I'll be scaling back and I'll hand off the back half of this passage, which I think really fits better with next week's text to Pastor Jesse, who will be preaching next week. So if you would, please turn to Mark 15, and the text is 33 through 41. And you can find this in the Pew Bible on page 853. So it won't be on the screen. Pull out your Bible, uh, iPad, smartphone, the Pew Bible. I prefer the hard copy. One of those dying breeds in the, the young generation. I like to touch it. I like to turn the real page. So it's 1533 through 41, 853 in the Pew Bible. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Let's pray. Almighty God, King of heaven, we come before you recognizing your holiness and our utter lack of coming before you on any terms of our own. You are so awesome. You're so mighty. You created everything by, 
by speaking it into existence. You are glorious. You are most beautiful. And we have gone our own way. We have lived, even this week, as believers at times for our own glory and not you and for your glory. We pray, Father, that that we, your people, would have a loosened grip, that you would loosen our grip on lesser treasures, whatever they might be, the things that we bought this past week when they were half off, these lesser treasures, these shiny things that cannot fulfill our heart's desire like Jesus Christ. Loosen our grips, Father. Help us to see what is most glorious, the one who is most to be treasured, and that is Jesus. Help us to see from your word the joy and the love and the treasure that is Christ. Help us to experience your love, Father, today. I pray, Father, for the struggling Christian that you would stir their hearts, the apathetic believer who is finding more hope and more joy in the things of this world. Show them Jesus. Show us Jesus. Show us the glory of your Son. And we pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of the blind. Those who are treasuring the things of this world would, after this morning, by your grace and for your glory, they would treasure Christ with us. We thank you for your word, for it. It is our food. It is soul food for the believer. And may you feed your people by your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, since October 11th of 2015, we as a church have been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. It's over a year now that we've been in Mark. I was talking to some trusted friends, some godly friends. You can tell by the answer that they will give to to this question. Has it seemed like it's been that long? And they said, no. It's, it's just been so fast. I feel like we just started, Mark, and that's what you want to tell somebody who's preaching through a series and takes a year to get through that series, or a year plus a few months. And the very first sermon that I preached in this series in Mark, I said this. I said that Mark's focus in this gospel is on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's his focus in this gospel. His aim is to connect the dots of his audience. He wants to to fill in the gaps so that they would better understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. Now, his original audience was the church in Rome that had gathered there, this new group of Christians gathered into a local church who who had heard the gospel and believed in the gospel and, and were seeking to follow Christ, but they didn't have the scriptures. And so Mark, under divine inspiration, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, gives them his gospel account. And his aim is to set before them the glory of Jesus. As we've made our way through the gospel, that's been our goal, our overarching goal. We want to see Jesus. Every single morning when we get together, and even if we're not in Mark, and and when we took breaks besides the the weeks we preached in Mark, uh, we want to see Jesus. We we want to see in in the Gospel of Mark who Jesus is so that we would worship him better. Because when we open the Gospel of Mark, we we hear stories about our Savior. We we hear his his character. We, we, We can see, spiritually behold who he is and better follow him. And that's what we want to do as Christians. We want to, to see Jesus, we want to, to worship Jesus, and we want to follow Jesus. And so that's been our aim. And, and that's what we've been doing as we've gone through Mark's gospel. We've seen his holiness. There's no one like Jesus. No one compares to who Jesus is. We, we've seen his great love for sinners. 
We've read the accounts of his compassion on the hopeless and the lost, those who are set aside and, and left out. We've seen his full submission over and over to God the Father's will no matter what. And we've also seen his power. It's been on full display in the Gospel of Mark. He preached with authority. He healed the sick. He casted out demons. He calmed the storm with his word. And he raised the dead back to life. And so as we've made through Mark's Gospel, those who have eyes to see have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And and that's our aim again this morning and for two more weeks. And really, as we get into our two-part Christmas series, it's then. But, But this is our focus. We want to see Jesus Now, in last Sunday's text, Mark describes the crucifixion of Christ when the author of life was publicly shamed, mocked, and humiliated, and then, like a common criminal, the king of kings was then nailed to a Roman cross. In this morning's text, Mark has brought us to the very foot of the cross, to the very center of Christianity, because without the cross, there's no gospel. And so here we are, brothers and sisters, friends, We are in Mark's gospel at the very climax, the the very center of the Christian faith. Yes, the the resurrection, but first must come the death of Christ. And so here we are. Now before we look more at the cross and Jesus' death, I want to briefly return to Mark 1. So I've taken over a year to preach through Mark, and now I want to bring you all the way back to chapter 1 and the very first verse of chapter 1. So we're going to start quickly. I'm not going to stay here for long, but, but... I want to bring you there, so if you would, either turn there, it'll be on the screen, but again, I like to hear the pages turn, old school, my generation, old school though. I want to turn here because I I want us to better understand what took place at the cross. Now in the very first verse of Mark's gospel, we read this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As I said, Mark wrote his gospel to help people understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And what is the very first thing that Mark tells us about Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. This is how he opens his gospel. This is what he begins with. And then, as the chapter continues, as as Mark 1 continues, Mark doesn't tell us about the nativity There's no mention of the virgin birth or that trip to Bethlehem. Instead, Mark goes right to Jesus' baptism. He skips ahead from where the the other gospel writers, and even John 1 talks about the incarnation, the word taking on flesh. So so Mark skips all of that, and he goes right to Jesus' baptism. And it's not a mistake. All that other stuff matters. All those details are important. They're true. But Mark wants to take us to this important event in which all three persons of the Trinity are present, revealing more than ever the doctrine of God, the mystery of the Trinity, and the relationship. And here's what I want to especially consider with you by going to Mark 1, Son of God and the baptism of Christ. The relationship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it's, it's pictured for us in the baptism. And here's why. Because if we have these things in mind, if we better understand these things, well then, then we will better understand why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 34 of this morning's text. And that is the apex, that is the climax of this text that I've read to you and that we find ourselves in this morning. We need to understand who God is, the Trinity and the relationships so that we can better understand what Jesus means when he cries that out. Mark's account of Jesus' baptism is like so many other things that Mark gives us accounts of. 
It's short. He, he doesn't give us all the details. He doesn't describe. He often doesn't name all the names. Every once in a while, he'll give us a little bit more than, than other gospel writers do. But, but his account of the baptism of Jesus is short, and I would say sweet, because it reveals quickly but gloriously the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Mark 1, 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. (coughs) When Jesus came up out of the water, having identified himself with sinners through baptism. Because remember, baptism at this point, John's baptism was a baptism for sinners. And so somebody would be baptized by John who recognized himself as a sinner, and yet Jesus has never sinned. So what is he doing here in the baptism? He's recognizing who we are, and he's associating himself with us. So though he has never sinned, he is connecting himself by this baptism, John's baptism, with sinners. It's an amazing act by the sinless Son of God. And like a proud father rejoicing over his son's great work, God the Father proclaims something sweet and powerful to his son. I'm a father to three boys and possibly another boy. We're not sure. We're waiting to find out, boy or girl. Uh, But I have found myself rejoicing and proclaiming wonderful things to my boys in response to their great works. My seven-year-old does something surprising for a seven-year-old. Awesome. Way to go, Isaac. That's I am, I am excited. I am proud. And, and not just because of what he does, but I tell him, I love you. I mean, we, we use the word, I love you all the time. And I love you. Like, Dad, I, I washed my hands. That's awesome. You, you just washed your hands without your mom telling you. Like, oh, like, but, but even bigger things, you know, when he, when he crushes me in, in a game of trouble. You know, like, whatever it is. I, I, I find myself rejoicing over my, and not just seven-year-old, but my four-year-old and his, and his sweetness, his, his, his desire to evangelize his brothers. I'm like, that's awesome. Like, keep on talking to your brothers about Jesus. This is great. Like, I rejoice over that. My, our littlest, Simeon, three years old, his language, his vocabulary is, is like better than mine. And I'm rejoicing when he uses these big words and full sentences at three. And, and, it, and that's what God the Father was doing infinitely more when he saw his son identify with us sinners. He was rejoicing over his son's great work and he proclaimed this to his son. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. God the Father loves God the Son with a perfect fatherly love. No other father could ever love their child with a greater, stronger love than God the Father has for his son. Why? Because God loves like no other. And here the father declares, he proclaims his love for his son over his son. The father's love for his son is perfect. It is complete. It is holy. It is untainted by sin. The father's love for the son is an eternal love, which Jesus speaks of in John 17 when praying in his high priestly prayer this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what was going on in eternity past before creation? 
love, 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 love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the, the, the triune God who needed nothing and who needs nothing, did not create us because he lacked anything, but it is out of his love, the love that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that God made everything and made us in his own image. 1 John 4, 8 teaches us that God is love. And because he is triune, because God is trinity, there was never a time that God did not love. If God is not triune, this is a sweet truth about God. It's like, this is a, a little, tra- little trail, I won't call it a rabbit trail, I'll call it a glory trail because it's awesome about God. God is triune and because he is triune, he has never lacked love. And he's never lacked one to love because he has always loved his son as father. The son has always loved the father as son and likewise with the spirit. It's beautiful. People say, I don't get the doctrine of the tree. You don't need to get it. You just got to believe it. <laughs> it's glorious. Who is like God? By definition, no one. You are not triune. I am not triune. God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is triune. One in three persons. It's glorious. And it has something to do with the relationship as well that, that we're going to need to understand as we look at this text more. At Christ's baptism, not only does God the Father declare his love for his Son, but, but look, God the Father announces his pleasure in his Son. Pleasure means to delight in. The Father at his baptism is delighting in his Son. He's finding joy. He's, he's, he's excited about his Son, like any good father would be, but even more than any other father has ever been about his Son. There's no reason for the Father not to delight in his Son. His Son is perfect. There's no Son like him. And the Son is co-equal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So you, you get this picture of, wow! Like, this is, I mean, the, the earthly family that God has created and, and how we structured, it, it's, a, it's to be this, this somewhat example of a picture of, of the eternal Godhead and, and the relationships that have always existed in, as Father, Son, and Spirit. I mean, it's amazing the love that, that exists within the Trinity, And with that great love that the Father has for the Son and his delight in the Son in mind, we now turn back to verse 34 in this morning's text. Remember, Christ has already been rejected by his people. He was already handed over to the Romans by the Jews who have said, that's not our king, he's not the Messiah. Get rid of him, Pontius Pilate, crucify him. They've already done that. He's been beaten, mocked, publicly shamed. And then he's been nailed to the cross to hang on until he dies. And it's there at the cross, under the, the instruction of the Romans, that Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So again, in light of the Trinity, in light of the love that the Father has for the Son and the delight that the Father has in his Son, this question from Christ on the cross is the most shocking question that has ever been asked in all of history. The Son who has in eternity past been loved by the Father with a love that is like no other, cries out to his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' cry is a direct quote from Psalm 22.1. And by quoting it, Jesus self-identifies as the righteous sufferer that is described in the entire psalm. See, oftentimes, Jesus and the the authors of the New Testament, the human authors of the New Testament, will go to the Old Testament and they'll, and they'll quote a passage. And when they do that, they're e- either making known the true context and, and the greater fulfillment of that passage in Christ, or they're not just drawing that one 
passage out of its context and then making it use of it in a different way, they're actually drawing from the entire context of that passage. And we see this in Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 prophesies in detail what Jesus experienced at the cross. So I'm going to read the first two verses and they'll be on the screen and then I'll just read a few other verses from Psalm 22 and you'll see that Jesus, when in quoting Psalm 22, he's not just saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's identifying with the author of this psalm. It's striking the parallels to Jesus' his experience on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've seen that, we've heard that. That's what Jesus cried out in Aramaic, his native tongue, at the cross. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. That's a picture of what Jesus is experiencing. Then skipping down to verses 6, 7, and 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. That's directly from Mark. That's, that's a quote of exactly what happened at the cross. And this is written hundreds of years before. And then still further on in verses 16, 17, and 18. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. Now look at this. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. That's a picture of, of what happened at the cross. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, Jesus experienced what he had never experienced before that and would never again experience after that. He experienced separation from his Father. It's as if the Trinity itself turned in on itself at the cross. At the cross, the Son of God experienced rejection and abandonment. Jesus was forsaken by his Father. Anyone who has ever felt rejected by another, abandoned by someone that they love and they thought loved them, knows the feeling of being forsaken, but not like Jesus. Anyone who has been denied in a relationship, anybody who, is, who has been uh, cheated on and abandoned in a marriage, anybody who, I mean, even to some degree, who wasn't picked for the team, was the last one there and just kind of got left out to watch the kickball game unfold, you, you know the feeling of rejection. You know the feeling of abandonment. It comes in so many different forms. And that is what the Son was experiencing on the cross. And the, the crazy part about it, and we know this as Christians, we, we recognize that this is central to the gospel, but it's still crazy. It's still horrific. The Son was completely innocent. Completely. He obeyed the Father and submitted to his will perfectly. He never did anything wrong. You and I deserve judgment. We deserve to be forsaken by God because of our sin, not the Son. He perfectly obeyed the Father's will, which made him the perfect sacrifice for our sin, made him possible to be that sacrifice, but he did it every single time. He, he never went his own way. He always submitted to the Father's will, and yet this forsaking of Christ was the very plan of God. Now, sometimes people make it seem as though God forsaking, the Father forsaking Jesus was wrong. As if, as if this is some form of divine child abuse. Or as if the, the Father was the bad God in, in this part of, of the gospel and, and the Son is the good God. But the Father always loves his Son and delights in his Son. 
Last night, I was working on my sermon here at the church office, uh, partly because I am not the fastest uh, sermon preparer. I, I have much room to grow. I know that. I recognize that. A sweet person came up to, up to me in between services and said, don't pick on yourself. It's just the reality. Like, I'm not the greatest preacher. I'm excited, hopefully, Lord willing, in five more years to be a better preacher. But, but it takes me a long time, longer than it should to prepare a sermon. And, and I had two sermons to prepare this week. We had Wednesday's, Wednesday's service on Psalm 136. Was joyous. If you missed it, you missed a lot of good pie and, and you missed some great fellowship and a great time. Um, but, but because of that service and, and because I was preaching, Today, I was working yesterday, a regular work day for me, and, uh, and so my wife, my beautiful wife Amy, texts me and says, hey, I'd like to bring you some, some dinner. I'd like to bring you some, some chili. Awesome, because for breakfast, I had leftover pumpkin pie from the, the, the leftovers of the fellowship on Wednesday evening, and for dinner, I was planning to have some more pumpkin pie. Uh, so, so this is great, and, and so she texts me. She's going to be you know, stopping and in in a little bit at, at, at the church. And so I, I get the text to come out. I, I go out and hop in the van and, and grab the chili. It's on my lap and I'm excited. You know, this is, this is going to be good and we're small talking. And, and I tell the boys, hey, boys, I'll be back before bed. I've got a few more hours. I'm going to work on this sermon. It needs some more work. It still needs some more work. I'm saying that in present tense. But uh, so I'm, uh, I'm telling them that and I shift back to Amy and, and we have a brief conversation. And then I look back and uh, my oldest boy is in, in the back seat and our middle boy is in, in one of the captain's chairs in our minivan and then our youngest is right behind me. And I look at our youngest, Simeon, who's three years old, and he's turned to the side and his hands are over his face and he's weeping. I'm like, what's wrong? And I don't know. It could be anything. It could be that he dropped Melvin, his favorite teddy bear that he brings everywhere right now, or Turtle, his stuffed turtle that he brings everywhere too. It could be that one of his brothers... Um, I mean, this never happens, but threw something at him or hit him or said something to him. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. So, I, Simeon, what's wrong? You know, I, I, I turn to him and, and finally he mo- moves his hands away from his eyes and he says, Daddy O, that's my nickname right now, Daddy O, I don't want you to go. And my heart just melts. <laughs> uh, it, it didn't take much convincing. I thought about it for about 10 seconds and, and decided that I'd pack up my stuff and go home and have dinner, have some chili with my family at home at the table because my little three-year-old boy didn't want to be abandoned by his father. I mean, it, again, I, I went willingly, but, but as I pondered that and I thought about, you know, the, the love that my son has for me and his desire to be by me and, and be with me and for me to not leave him, I couldn't help but think of the text that I was preparing to preach. I mean, here it is, the father who loves his son with a love that is never never been compared to anything. It can't be compared to anything else. This, this perfect love and the love that the son has for the father. And now the, the father turns his, way, his, his face away from his son at the cross. He did not delight in that. This was not a, a joy for the father. But this was God's plan. And why? Why? You know, if there could be any other way, it, certainly you would think that God the Father would have done it. He would have taken out his, his son from that situation. He would have rescued him and brought him to himself so they could enjoy the fellowship that they had enjoyed for eternity past. Why did God the Father, who loves his son and delights in him, forsake him? So many answers are given in Scripture, ultimately pointing to the same truth, and I'm going to give you a few Scriptures to point you to that truth. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Christ was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, in order to bring us peace with the Father. So the Father crushed the Son. It's, it's not Satan, remember, who has some power over God. God is supreme. He is all-powerful. We were enemies of God. We deserve chastisement. We deserve to be stricken and smitten. And yet, instead of that, the reason why the Father forsook his Son was so that his Son could take our place at the cross. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, speaking of the same thing in different words. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There the word is again, that beautiful word, propitiation. The Father sent his Son into into the world so that we would live through Christ because he loved us. So what was, what was driving, what was motivating the forsaking of, of the Son, the Father's love for us, and the Son's love for us, their mutual love for us? And by his death, Jesus atones for our sins. One more passage, Colossians 1, 19-22. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, took on human flesh to reconcile sinners by the blood of his cross. Scripture teaches us that all people are born alienated from God. We are hostile. We are enemies of God. We're not cool. We don't start zero. We start negative a million. We are against God. This is how we're born. It's part of being human after the fall. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. This death refers not only to physical death, which it refers to, but also to spiritual death. That is, separation from God. And not just for a time, but for all of eternity. It means hell. But Colossians 1 tells us that the Son has made a way for us to be reconciled to God through his death. Paul, later on in Galatians, writes this glorious truth. Not only have we not been forsaken, but we have been, by God's grace, given something else. Galatians 3, 25 and 26 won't be up on your screen. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It's not just that the father forsook his son and said, okay, you people can, can uh, hang out with me. It's that the father forsook his one and only son, gave him to us as a substitute so that we church would be called sons and daughters so that we church would not have label identity sinner going to hell but saint having been redeemed by the forsaking of God's one and only son Jesus Christ D.A. Carson one of my seminary professors who had a profound impact on me theologically and just as a as a Christian and as a pastor uh, once in in his 
one of his lectures, middle of the lecture, big, big class, you know, uh, probably 75, 100 people, big class. He was going through biblical theology and he was teaching us about the, the sonship of Christ. And he got to this, this text, this, this cry from Jesus, and he said this, and, and it's ingrained in my mind because, because D.A. Carson is one of the greatest scholars of our time, and he's considered that by not just Christian scholars, but non-Christian scholars. He's a New Testament scholar. And, and he said, why did Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I wouldn't have to. And here, this, this godly man who has been found, found the Lord and, and defending the gospel for years had tears in his eyes. Because he got it. Because he wasn't just a studier of Scripture. He was a believer in the gospel. And I couldn't help but tear up. And I think the whole, I mean, the whole class filled with a bunch of, uh, of soon-to-be missionaries, women uh, preparing to, to serve the Lord, and men preparing for the pastorate. I mean, tears in her eyes because we saw the passion and the love that this man had has for Christ because of what Christ's passion did for him and for all of us. What does it mean that Christ for, was forsaken, that he cried this out? It means that, that drunkards would no longer have to be drunkards and be forsaken by God. It means that former adulterers and those who are sexually immoral, if they throw themselves in the mercy of God in Christ, they would be forgiven of their sins and not be forsaken by God. It means that stay-at-home moms who find their identity and their joy and have worshipped their children would be freed from that hopelessness and be able to enjoy Christ and be forgiven and not forsaken because they have made a, an idol of their family. It means that businessmen that have lived their whole lives and, and spent their whole career making a, a kingdom of, of their own making for their own joy because they think their king could be forgiven by Jesus' finished work at the cross and not have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what it means. And how can we be sure of this? How can we have confidence that Christ was forsaken for us? That God will not reject us? That through the death of Jesus, the way to God has been opened to sinners? Well, Mark gives us an answer to these questions in verses 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark tells us that Jesus let out a loud cry and died. And it's likely that cry was, it is finished. It's done because the atoning work that he had come to do, to die on the cross for God's people, all who would trust in Jesus, was complete. And all that awaited was the resurrection when the Father would raise his son from the dead. And immediately after that, that cry that Jesus gave, we're told that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a work of God, a mighty work of God, a miracle. The curtain here refers to the material that separated the, the holy of holies from the, the holy place in the temple. This thick material that, that prevented anyone else from, from going into the holy of holies except for the high priest for one day of the year could go into the holy of holies where God's presence uniquely dwelled, his glory filled in the Old Covenant. That, that veil shielded everybody else from going in there. And the only person that could go in is that high priest who would bring in the blood from the bull that had been sacrificed because of the people's sin. He'd bring that, that blood in, into the Holy of Holies and he'd sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder that, that the cost of sin is death and without a sacrifice, 
there can be no forgiveness of sins. And without a covering by a death, then God's people would die. That curtain separated holy God from sinful people. And yet on that day, the very hour, the very moment that Jesus gave up his life, that curtain was torn in two. And the meaning cannot be overstated. It is not over-spiritualized to say this. The tearing of the curtain meant that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. It accomplished what was needed. You can't add to the gospel. You can't add a single work. You do your good works because of the gospel. Your faith produces good works. It's not the other way around. And that is made clear in the tearing of the curtain. The sacrifice was sufficient. Your sins have been atoned for. The tearing of the curtain meant that, that the end of the Mosaic covenant had come. The law had been fulfilled by Jesus. And finally, the tearing of the curtain meant that God was now accessible to all men and women who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. When Christ died, the penalty for sin was paid. The barrier between God and man was removed physically, literally. We throw that word around, literally. No, literally, God ripped it in two so that his people, all who would come to him by faith in Christ, would know that there would be no longer a barrier between them and him. I have two more sermons counting this one in Mark. Next week, Pastor Jesse's preaching, and I love to quote J.C. Ryle, so I'm going to give you one more quote from Ryle. Ryle describes this glorious moment in salvation history this way. In the instant that our Lord drew his last breath, the work of atonement for sin was accomplished. The ransom for sinners was paid, and I love this. The kingdom of heaven was thrown fully open to all believers. And this leads us right into verse 39. A verse that shows that all the things that were communicated in the tearing of the curtain are totally true. What a verse verse 39 is. And you probably read it and you're like, oh, cool. This is an awesome verse. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. From the lips of a Roman centurion comes this great confession. Remember, what has Mark set out to do from the very beginning? To show his readers that Jesus is the Son of God. And you know who the first human to say those words is? A former pagan idol worshiper who was the, the captain of the execution team that put our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to death. Oh, sinner questioning whether or not the work of Christ can truly atone for your sins. Look at the centurion and his good, glorious confession. This unlikely, surprising convert. What brought about his confession? It wasn't seeing or witnessing one of Jesus' miracles. You know, sometimes people say, I'll believe if God does this, if Jesus appears. Don't play that game with God. <laughs> and that's ultimately not going to get you to believe because it didn't convince most of the Pharisees either to believe in Jesus it wasn't a powerful sermon, this emotional worship experience where everybody had their hands raised and were, were, were getting excited about the gospel. It was seeing how Jesus died that brought about this powerful, good confession from this once former pagan worshiper. So what is your connection to Christ this morning? Have you, like the centurion, in response to the cross, confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. <laughs> Don't play games with God. He knows who's here. He knows what's in their heart. He knows what true worship is. He didn't accept it when he was being pumped out of the temple. He destroyed the temple. And he won't accept it from you. So, so friend, don't play religious games. Consider who Jesus is 
and what he did at the cross and ask yourself, was Christ forsaken for me? Because if he was not, then you will be forsaken by God. But if he was, oh, if he was, then you have joy and you have treasure, you have forgiveness. Still, sometimes, we Christians might think that we have been actually forsaken by God. We go through various experiences in life and, and, and they're hard. You know, we, we hear the word cancer either for ourselves or a loved one. We experience great loss. Someone that we care so much, a member of our family dies. And, and we wonder, has, Christ fors- has, has God forsaken me? Has, has Christ truly paid for, for me or, or is God now forsaken me? Well, whatever we might feel, this is not the truth because of the gospel. Christian, all your sin was laid upon Jesus, the Holy Son of God, who became sin for you, for me, for us. Jesus experienced the agony of Calvary. He experienced being forsaken by the Father on the cross so that we who should have and would have would not be forsaken by God. That's the reality. Because of Christ and his finished work, we have been adopted by the Father. We've been made sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Christian, though your feelings and experience may tell you one thing, the cross assures you that you will not be rejected by God because in Christ you have been accepted. Now, oftentimes in Christian lingo, we we say, oh, you've got to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's not terrible language. Sometimes people say you have to accept Jesus into your heart. I'm not as much of a fan of that because it doesn't really make sense because Jesus won't fit. (laughs) The Spirit indwells the believer, but you, what you do is you accept Jesus as King, as Lord, as Savior, as the one who he said he was, as your forsaken but but raised from the dead, resurrected King. I mean, that, that's what we talk about when we talk about the gospel. We, we respond to the glory of God in Christ when we trust in Jesus. See, Christian, you and I will, will never be forsaken, not because we have accepted Jesus, but because God has accepted the finished work of Christ on our behalf. That's why we come before the Father and we cry out to him. That's why we can know without a doubt, even in our struggles, even in our darkest of nights, We will not be rejected by God because Christ was forsaken for us. Let's pray. Oh God, what a sweet truth to make its way down into our hearts this morning. And I pray, Father, for those struggling Christians, those who who fear that you have abandoned them because of their circumstance, who, who think that maybe, just maybe, despite the gospel, you have rejected them. Oh, Father, tell them the truth. May Mark's text, may this passage make its way deeper and deeper down in their hearts so that they would experience your powerful, your surpassing, your incomparable love for them because of Jesus' finished work. And Father, I pray for the lost, those who are, who are audibly hearing these words, but they are not hearing them. Father, open their eyes, give them ears. May they behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and trust in him alone that he was forsaken for them so that they would be adopted by you, their Father in heaven. May they throw themselves on the mercy and the grace that you have for sinners in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.